God speaks to us in his word in Mark 13, 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Y'all are a little more awake uh, than the 9 a.m. Of course, I guess it's basically the 11 or the 8 a.m. Um, by standards uh, of yesterday. Uh, can we please get this thing changed? I am tired of the back and forth. I don't know about you. Uh, if you like the time change, I'm sorry, I will pray for your soul. Um, hey, this morning, uh, we, we get to dive into this Mark 13 passage. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I get to serve as pastor for church planning and church strengthening for Frontline as a whole. One of the, one of the things I love is being a church, one church in five congregations, is this commitment to two things. One is to local ministry in a place, so that we have local leaders serving uh, their neighborhood and their town, uh, and, and at the same time, us also benefiting from from learning from each other and being able to share the load together. And so I get a chance uh, to serve our church as a whole in the realm of church planning, but I also get to serve our Yukon congregation as one of the pastors on the ground there. And, but it's a privilege to be able to come here this morning and be with you. I get to come out here periodically. It was great to have Whitney got to lead us from, from Frontline Downtown because we are one church. And so that's just something that I love, and I'm really glad you're here. Um, and I want to say, hey, if you're here and you're a guest, welcome. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to say thank you for being here. Uh, it's, it's a brave thing to step into a space where you may feel like you, you might be uh, believed differently than others in the room. And let me just say this quite, quite clearly. Um, we are committed as a church to saying that not only are Christians welcome here, but people that aren't following Jesus are welcome here. No, you're not going to be pushed at arm's length. You're not going to be pushed out the door. No skepticism or question is going to get you ran out. I want to ask you to bring your questions. We actually do believe what the Bible says about who God is and why, why Jesus is the only way to the Father, and we believe it and we'd love to dialogue with you. And so if you've got questions, um, bring them, let's talk about them, but thank you for being here. Um, this morning, as Zach just mentioned, is we're going to spend our third week in Mark 13. If you've been here the, the last two weeks, you know this is a challenging chapter. It's, it raises a lot of questions, and, and, and it's a difficult-to-interpret passage. And yet, and yet, even in hard passages, God speaks to us by His Spirit. So here's what I want to ask. I want to ask you for some patience as we step through some hard questions today, because I think that this text actually is going to not just speak to our minds, but speak to our hearts. And number two, we need to ask the Spirit to actually do that work, because I can't change your heart, but He can and so I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we dive into this text and see what God might say to us by his spirit. God, would you speak to us? I pray that you would speak to our mind and help us understand this passage, but I ask God that you would, you would not leave it at that, but that you would speak to our hearts and teach us how to trust you. 
Would you teach us how to wait for you? Would you teach us how to hope in you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know what it is or what it says about our culture that we are fascinated by disaster movies, but we are, right? Every time one comes out, we flood to the theater, grab our popcorn and our soda that's way overpriced, and we consume this, uh, this movie that's going to talk about disasters that are looming. But what's interesting about most disaster movies is that they all share one thing in common. There's this one voice this one prophetic voice yelling at the, the people that are asleep to wake up to what's real. If it's an alien uh, invasion movie, there's always this crazed scientist who's been uh, locked up in a trailer for a little bit too long, hasn't taken a shower in a while, and he's been studying the stars, and he's like, they're coming. Everybody wake up. If it's one about an environmental disaster, there's always this crazed scientist who's been studying uh, uh, geological events and all these things, and he's telling everybody, wake up, disaster's looming. And if it's one of the greatest movies of all time, it's a crazed scientist warning us not to resurrect dinosaurs from the DNA trapped in mosquitoes, trapped in amber. Side note, why is it always the crazed scientist? I don't understand, we must have a thing with scientists, but they're always the crazy ones that are telling us to wake up in these movies. You see, as a culture, we are fascinated by questions about the end of the world. We're fascinated by them. They show up in all sorts of arenas. And as we are fascinated by these questions, we are constantly hearing people that are warning about the end of the world. Whether it's one of the greatest bands of the last 50 years, R.E.M., singing, it's the end of the world as we know it. Or maybe it's the cacophony of apocalyptic uh, warnings about the loss of Western civilization or the loss of human history itself that is all over the airways. We hear these voices talking about everything is coming to an end, whether the culprit is climate change, economic collapse, or social decay. We're consumed with this idea that the end is upon us. And this isn't just out in the world. This has been throughout all of church history. It's really fascinating, also a little disturbing and confusing, how often in the church history we've tried to predict the thing that the Bible told us we can't predict when Jesus is coming back. Oh, there's been people over and over again. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. He's coming, over ne- he's coming back next year. He came back yesterday. Like all these kinds of voices telling us about the end. Well, there's two different ways in which our relationship to the end can actually lull us to sleep that I think we need to pay attention to this morning. There's two ways in which our relationship to the end of the world can lull us to sleep. The first is, uh, the first ditch is apathetic dismissal. In other words, we hear so often this talk about the end of the world that we begin to imagine or convince ourselves that either it's not real or it's not applicable. Either it's not actually going to happen or it's not going to really matter, at least in my life. And so we dismiss it out of hand. And instead, we, we respond by distracting ourselves, by chasing pleasures, chasing anxieties, and chasing self-absorption. But there's another ditch. And that's this obsessive speculation. 
So if one ditch is apathetic dismissal, the other is obsessive speculation. This can look, this can take either secular forms or religious forms, but we get so caught up, so consumed in what's going to happen in the future that we actually lose sight of the present. That we get so caught up trying to ask these questions of what's happening and we're fixated on the future that we lose sight of the present. You see, the reality is that for most of us, one way or another, we've been lulled to sleep. The reality is that in many ways, we are asleep to reality itself. That's actually what our text this morning is about. It's a call to us who are asleep to awaken. So let's look at this chapter 13 for just a minute. This is a text that if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been doing some deep work in. It's a hard passage. There's a lot of confusing uh, things happening in these two passages, which is why we have Sam Storms coming this night of eschatology that Zach talked about. And I would, steer, I would strongly encourage you to come uh, Wednesday, March 23rd, downtown at 630. Sam is brilliant. Um, he is humble, and he's a really good teacher. And so even if in the end you disagree with some of his positions on these things, I can guarantee you, you'll be sharpened and come away encouraged. So my in- invitation is to join us and to bring your questions. But right now, what I want to do is I want to remind us of the last two weeks. Remind us of the last two weeks. At this point in Mark, what Jesus has done is he's come into Jerusalem the week before he is to be betrayed and killed. The, his disciples don't know it. They, just, they think that they are coming to Jerusalem because Jesus is going to take over, kick out the Romans, and reform the temple. That's what they think is going to happen. They think that Jesus coming into the city is going to mean a resurrection of the political order of Israel and a reformation of the religious order. And they're excited. They're excited until, until Jesus begins to say things that are weird and do things that are weird. And we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, about the way he talks in the temple. I mean, at one point he walks into the temple, which is to be this place of respect and a meeting of God, and he starts throwing tables and yelling at people and chasing them out of the temple. You're like, what just happened? And at one point they walk into the temple and Jesus leaves, and they don't recognize what's happening in the moment. But we read about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus leaves the temple, and it's a prophetic symbol that God himself is leaving the temple. Jesus walks out of the temple, he walks down a valley, and he walks up to the Mount of Olives, and he stands on the top of the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And I don't know what the conversation took place, or what the conversation was like. I don't know what they were talking about as they went. But at one point, at one point, Jesus' disciples look back over Jerusalem, and they see the temple, which was an architectural masterpiece of the the, first order. It 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 was a sight to behold. And the disciples who have just come out of the temple with Jesus, not recognizing what his departure meant, say this, look at that temple, Jesus. Look at how magnificent it is. Now, what would you expect Jesus' response to be? You're right. I did kind of design it. You're right. It's, it's beautiful and amazing and Lord willing, there's going to be a lot of good things happen there over the years. But that's not Jesus' response, is it? Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus' response. He says to them, it looks magnificent, and it is, but not too far from now, not too long from now, there will not be one stone standing on top of another. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine for just a moment to hear this? 
to see this, to see this, to, it would be like being in Washington, D.C. and seeing the Capitol and the White House and these monuments and going, look at these beautiful buildings only for somebody to say, yeah, in a few years there won't be a stone standing on another. It would shake your world. Shake your world. The disciples are absolutely dumbfounded, and so their question to Jesus is the question any one of us would ask if we believed him, when? When, Jesus? When are these things going to happen? Because I don't think I want to be around to see it. So Jesus' response is to talk about the season that's coming. Two weeks ago, we saw this, that Jesus would talk about what he calls the birth pangs. That, that, that a season would be coming in which certain things would signal, not that the end is there, but that, that we're getting near. Kind of like birth pangs indicate that a birth is coming at some point in the near future. These signs would be there. There would be wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, family betraying family. All of these things, he says, are but birth pangs. They're not the end yet. And he says, when those things happen, stay put. Continue to live your life. Continue to engage where you are. Live faithfully as you are and don't be alarmed. But last week, we heard what he says next. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not stand, now, any Jewish reader knows exactly what he's talking about because he's referring to Daniel, a Daniel pro uh, prophecy. And you know, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go into detail here. But he says, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the temple where he ought not be, he says, don't wait around, run. Don't wait around, run. So here's the, here's the point. Jesus says, when the birth pangs are happening, stay put and continue to live life. But when this event happens, run, flee, get out. I want you to stop for a moment and just put yourself in the life of the disciples here for a second. What are they thinking? What other questions are going through their minds? What are the fears they're feeling? I mean, remember, these are, these are disciples that when they came into Jerusalem thought that Jesus was going to come and reestablish the political order and the religious order of Jerusalem. And now Jesus is saying it's all going to go away. Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the confusion? Sometimes we don't stop enough to feel a text and to imagine what they experienced. But they would have had a million fears and a million questions. And it's that context that leads us to this text right now because Jesus is just continuing on in what he said. So what we're going to read today is directly connected to that. See, this is why I want to remind you the last two weeks are leading straight into this. So let's look at Mark 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That phrase, but concerning that day or that hour, demands our attention. You see, to, to even begin to interpret this passage, to interpret what's happening here, we have to answer the question, or at least ask the question, what day is Jesus talking about here? What day is he talking about? And this is going to require us to put our thinking caps on for just a moment in order to, to deal with some questions that are going to lead to 
what we glean from this passage because there is a, there is a, a difference among many scholars on what day he's referring to here. So give me just a second as we talk about this. There are two ways that scholars tend to interpret this passage about what day Jesus is talking about. The first camp says that what Jesus is talking about is the same thing he's been talking about the last two weeks in this passage, is what's going to happen with the destruction of Jerusalem as Jesus brings judgment against the temple in AD 70. So that's, that's a, a view of this, that what Jesus is talking about is the same thing he was talking about the last two weeks, the rest of Mark 13. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so when he says that day, he's contrasting that day with the season. In other words, there's a season that you're going to see coming, but there's a day you won't know. That's essentially the, the train of thought. Argument for this is that the disciples are clearly asking about when the temple is going to be destroyed. That's the question they're asking, and Jesus is answering the question, so it makes sense that he's still talking about A.D. 70. He doesn't tell the disciples he's going to answer a different question. They don't even have some understanding of anything else. So that's an argument that this is for A.D. 70. There's another interpretation or, 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 or family of interpretations that says that what Jesus is doing is he actually pivots right here. And instead of talking about AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, he's talking about his second coming when he comes at the end of the age to bring all things to an end. People that hold this view will talk about the fact that there seems to be a break in the way he's talking about the situation. Before, he was talking about certainty regarding times, and now he's talking about uncertainty regarding times. There's, a, there's, a, there's some grammatical disjunction here, too, that makes it sound like maybe he's talking about something else. And when they say no one knows, this is the way the New Testament talks about Jesus' second coming. That often throughout the New Testament, when they talk about Jesus coming at the end of the age, there's language used like no one will know, or it will be like a thief coming in the night. So the sim similarity in the way that Jesus is talking about that. So the way that he talks here about that day or that hour mirrors many ways in which the New Testament talks about the second coming. Now, which is it? That's why you paid all your money to come in this morning, right? Is to get the answer, which is it, Jeff? Well, here's the deal. I think it's the first. I think it's AD 70. There are not, that's not even a shared across our pastoral team. Some of our pastors would lean towards the second. So my point is not to try to argue and convince you of one over the other. That's not actually my point. But I do think it's 8070 because I think the context that Jesus is speaking to is this particular question about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he, what he says about that day corresponds to the fact he's been talking about a season that they will perceive, but a day they won't know, right? If, if you, for, for those of you that have had children in the room, um, you, there are birth pangs that tell you it's about to come, but that doesn't tell you exactly when the baby's going to come, right? In the same way, this is what I think Jesus is doing because he's answering a question that the disciples had and the disciples didn't even know about a second coming yet. They just hear talk, Jesus talking about Jerusalem. That said, there's a lot of people that I have massive respect for, including the one and only Sam Storms who's going to be leading our talk uh, in a couple of weeks, who think that it's about the second coming. There are scholars men and women, godly, faithful people that are trying to interpret the Bible that come to a different understanding of what specifically Jesus is talking about here. Now, to set your minds at ease, I think it's worth us digging in and trying to perceive what he's talking about. But I also want to say this. 
no matter what you believe about what he's referring to here, the application of this text is the same, and both things are real. As in, Jesus did come and destroy the temple in judgment in AD 70. It's beyond question. That's historically proven. He also, we are told throughout the New Testament, is coming again at the end of the age. So this text, whether it's talking about the first or the second, I mean, in that sense, doesn't matter. Both are true. Both are real. And both give us confidence in this scripture. It also should give us a lot of humility. It should lead us to be really humble when we hold some of these positions in which there are different opinions. I can believe certainly about an interpretation and still hold that humbly. And so that's what I want to ask you to do. No matter what you think is happening here, I want you to hold that with humility. But here's what I want to do. Let's not stop at dealing intellectually with what he's talking about. Let's go to the message that he's speaking to us. What does he say to us? Now, before we continue on this passage, I want to take a second, and I do want to talk about the second coming. I want to talk about it because I think it's going to help us understand how this text applies to us, no matter what the interpretation of this day or this hour is. You see, the Bible and Christian history and Christian theology use the Greek term parousia to talk about coming. That's simply what it means is coming. But this idea, this, this idea of a parousia was this expectation of the arrival of someone of power or of, of importance. You would talk about the arrival of a king into a city, the parousia, the, the arrival, the coming of this one of power and this one of importance. And the Bible and Christian theology turns this specifically to talk about Jesus and his coming. Now let's remember for a second that Jesus' disciples had no understanding yet of this second coming at the end of the age. They thought when they were coming to Jerusalem, he was going to set up shop right then and there. He was going to establish the kingdom of God in Jerusalem right then and there. That was their expectation. They thought that the king was going to come and overthrow the Roman rulers and establish David's throne and reform the religious order. But the Bible talks about Christ's parousia or his coming differently. It's common to talk about two comings. His first coming in the incarnation when he took on human flesh and, and was born of, as a baby and, and walked through Galilee before his death. That's one coming, and the second coming being at the end of the age. But it's, I think it's important to recognize that there's actually a sense in which the Bible talks about multiple comings of Jesus, multiple arrival points, multiple points in which he engages with our timeline. You see, if I go to Genesis 1 and 2, I see God creating everything, right? He speaks and galaxies begin to swirl. He speaks and living things spring to life. Like the power of his words to speak creates everything. And yet Colossians tells us that it's through Jesus that the world was made. So Jesus himself was present at creation. He had come in that sense. We read in the Bible of, of God rescuing Israel out of Egypt, right? This, this story that we, we have, Charlton Heston uh, iconically uh, playing the Moses character, leading Israel out of slavery in Egypt to a promised land. And yet if you look, read the gospel of Jude, or the book of Jude, it's really fascinating. He says, it was Jesus who rescued Israel out of Egypt. You're like, wait a minute. Jesus, as God is there in the Exodus. 
Now, clearly we see this in the Gospels. We've been seeing it all the way through Mark and all the other Gospels talk about Jesus having come to this earth, right? But we also have this sense that we talked about last week that's tied to this Daniel 7 prophecy that, that Jesus himself comes in judgment and that at least in one sense happens at AD 7. So there are these ways in which God has been coming. Jesus has been coming and engaging in, in, created, uh, in creation time and space. And yet, and yet, the Bible talks over and over and over and over again that there is still yet one more coming. There's still one more time when he will come at the end of the age. As he has come, he will come in what we often call his second coming, but I think might be better termed his last coming. His last coming. A coming in which he will bring this age to an end establish the new heavens and the new earth and bring both final judgment and final redemption. Let's read this in Acts 1. Jesus at this point has been raised from the dead and has spent a couple of weeks walking with his disciples and now comes to a a hill and gathers them as he's about to ascend to heaven. Uh, Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Does this sound familiar? I mean, it was just weeks before the disciples were asking the question we just dealt with, which is, when are these going to happen? So now there's like, oh, weeks have happened, and you know what? Jesus was killed, and now he's alive? Maybe maybe now. now. Is now the time? Is now the time he's going to establish his kingdom? And what is Jesus' response? The same as it was before. It's not for you to know the times. It's not, it's not, it's not for you to know. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, he promises that in this time of them not knowing when he will come back, he will give, him, give them his Holy Spirit to walk with them, to carry out mission until he returns. Now, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood behind him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Look at that phrase, will come in the same way. This promise is reaffirmed throughout the New Testament over and over and over again. We could, we could go to passage after passage. There's over 20 of them that explicitly refer to a second coming and many others that allude to it. Let's just look at one, 1 Thessalonians 4. Starting in verse 13, Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see, what has happened at this point in Thessalonica is, is wrong teaching about his coming has infiltrated the church, and Paul's trying to set this, the record straight. There's questions about who gets to see Jesus first, and who rises first, and, and what will the resurrection look like, and so he's answering these questions, but look at this. He says, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Listen to this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love this passage, and I love the way it ends, because Paul's explanation of what it means to understand Christ's second coming is he sees it as encouragement. Too often we think about the end, and we get filled with fear and anxiety. But his promise here is actually, no, 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 that's not a reason to be afraid. That's a reason to rejoice. It's actually a reason to be encouraged. You see, all historically Orthodox Christians throughout, throughout Christian history have agreed on two things. The first, that Jesus is coming back again at the end of the age. And number two, nobody knows when. Despite some of the things you see on Christian TV and some of the books that are out there, these are two things that historically the church has, has argued Jesus is coming back and no one knows when. So you may be wondering, If I think that this passage that we're reading in Mark 13 is actually about 80, 70, why did I just get, spend the last five or so minutes talking about the second coming? And here's why. Because Jesus' words to his disciples were words to, to comfort them and to form them while they waited for something they did not know when would happen. And we exist in a moment that is exactly the same. As the disciples waited for the destruction of Jerusalem to come and God's judgment to come on Jerusalem and all that that would bring, we wait for the coming of Jesus. And just as the disciples didn't know when it was going to happen, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. In other words, this message to his disciples doesn't, is not just for them, it's for us. It's for us. So I want us to look at the rest of this passage and I want us to hear what Jesus would say to us. But I want to start by saying this. Just because the Bible isn't speaking about us doesn't mean it's not speaking to us. There are three things that the, that the, that the Bible speaks to situations we will never encounter. There are the prophets that talk about Israel and what they are going to see coming. And we didn't experience those things. And yet we still learn from them. We still learn about God's promise to Israel about how he will lead them out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. But were any of you there? No. But does it still speak to us in our day? Yeah, it does. So just because a passage doesn't speak about us doesn't mean it's not speaking to us. This is God's eternal word. So let's keep going in Mark 13, looking at verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, listen to this, what I say to you, the disciples, I say to all 
us stay awake. When I say to you, disciples, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus is speaking to us in this text. He's telling the disciples that a day is coming and they don't know when it is, but they need to be on guard because the coming days will be long and they will be hard. Go back to two weeks ago uh, in the sermon, and, and let me just say this. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the last two weeks. It'll, these three weeks kind of fit together. But we talked about the fact that what happened at this moment in Jewish history was tragedy upon tragedy. There was death and bloodshed and horrors that many of us could never imagine. Jesus knew that it would be really easy to lose sight of reality in the midst of the suffering. And so he calls to them not to lose focus and not to fall asleep. And notice in this text, three different times he makes an appeal to be awake, to stay awake, three different times in this short passage. So I think it, it, it matters for us to, talk a, to take just a quick second and ask, what does it mean to stay awake? What does it mean to stay awake? Well, first I want to say what it doesn't mean. Staying awake does not mean knowing what or knowing how something will happen or when it will happen. In other words, for the disciples to understand, to stay awake, did not mean that they knew how Jesus was going to bring what he did on Jerusalem, nor exactly when. They didn't know either. They didn't know how it was going to happen. They didn't know when it was going to happen. In the same way, we, we await the second coming of our Savior. We await that second coming. We don't know exactly how. I mean, we, we know what it's going to look like. He told us in Acts 1, but, but we don't really know how that's going to look. What's it mean to be caught up in the sky with it? We don't know any of that, and we definitely don't know when. So staying awake does not mean having an answer to those two questions. But can, I just, can we just take a second and acknowledge the fact we want answers to both those questions, don't we? We want to know how, and we want to know when, because we think if we know those things, we'll be able to stay awake. But that's not true. Those are not the two questions we need. To stay awake means not to know how and when. It means to know who and why. To stay awake, to stay awake means to know who and why. Who? Jesus. Who is it that will bring all of God's promises to fruition at the end of time? Jesus. Who is it that will bring an end to death and sin and suffering? Jesus. Who will wipe away every tear from your eyes? Jesus. I'm leaving from here as soon as the service is over to go downtown um, Oklahoma City for a funeral of a good friend of mine we're burying today. And the only hope I've got, and the only hope his family has, is who holds him, and that is Jesus. That death doesn't get the last word. That staying awake remember, is remembering who holds everything. Who holds me? Who holds my family? Who will carry to completion the things that God has begun in our lives? Who will 
Who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul says. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus. Staying awake, remember, is, is remembering not how and when, but who and also why. Why is Jesus coming again? Why is Jesus coming back at the end of the age? I can't tell you every single possible answer to that, but I can tell you this. At least one of the reasons why is because he has already promised he won't let sin, Satan, or death win. They don't get the last word. Why is Jesus coming back? Because this world is broken in need of redemption. And he promised he would do it. Why is he coming back? Because he has set his love and affection on those who are his and he is coming to rescue and to bring to life those who he is redeeming. Why is he coming back? To put an end to wickedness and evil and injustice and pain. That's why. What it means to stay awake is not knowing how or when, it's knowing who and why and trusting in those answers. So what does it look like to stay awake? What does it look like to stay awake? I want to ask you, Frontline Shawnee, to, to, to move towards two things, to cultivate in your life two things that I think will help you stay awake to remember both who is coming and why he is coming. And these two things are discernment and maturity. Discernment and maturity. By discernment, I mean we are a people with eyes wide open that are aware of, of both what Scripture says to us and aware of what's happening around us. We live in a world that is not our friend. Now, God has called us as his church to be salt and light here, to love, to serve, and to bless our, the world around us. But he also reminds us the world's not our friend. The world wants to take our eyes and turn them off of Jesus and onto a million other things. And part of discernment is being aware of the way in which we are being shaped and misshaped by the culture around us. To be wide awake to the fact that the things that go in our hearts and the feelings that we have sometimes actually aren't lined up with truth. And to look at Scripture and look at the world through the lens of Scripture and see things as they really are. That's discernment. The second is maturity. What does maturity look like? I, I, I think we could talk a, a long time about what this looks like, but I, but I think for our, for our point here this morning, I think I want to turn our attention to three ways in which maturity, Christian maturity, plays itself out in our lives. The first is it cultivates patient hope. Patient hope. As we grow in gospel certainty and as we grow in gospel maturity as followers of Jesus we learn both how to hope for the future and how to be patient while we wait it's one of those marks about old saints i love sp spending time with with men and women who have walked with Jesus for decades because if they are and they've grown in maturity and they're anchored in the gospel they're just not really phased by many things Things come they never expected. 
suffering comes they never wanted. And yet they keep their eyes focused on hope and they wait patiently for it to come. I think maturity also looks like deep trust in God. It's connected to patient hope, but it's, it's a little different, that we trust him in whatever season we find ourselves. We trust that Jesus actually is reigning from heaven over everything. So when the world looks like it's spinning out of control, which right now kind of does in times, right? Jesus isn't in heaven fretting and, and flailing and, and trying to figure out what's going to happen next. I don't know. Is Putin actually going to invade? Is he not? Is coronavirus over? Or we got another wave coming? He's not panicked. Why? Because he's in control. And we can trust him. And Christian maturity looks like patient hope, deep trust in God, and third, faithfulness in the present moment. Faithfulness in the present moment. It's fascinating to me that this is what Jesus says here when he's talking to his disciples. He describes the situation as a parable to explain what he means. He says, imagine an owner of a, of a household leaving, the master of the household leaving on a journey, and you don't know when he's coming back, but you as one of the servants of the home has been left in charge. He says, stay faithfully doing what you were told to do as you wait for him to return. Christian maturity is not pulling off target. It's staying lined up in what Jesus asked us to do. Now, both of these, though, we need the Holy Spirit to give us because you're not smart enough, good enough, pretty enough to pull this off by yourself. We need his spirit doing this in us. I think it's also important that we remember that it's hard to stay awake when the night is long. It's hard to stay awake when the night is long. And yet that's exactly what Jesus invites us to. He doesn't say the night's gonna go fast. He doesn't say it's gonna quickly. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. But he does say, stay awake even when the night is long. So here's my question to you. In what areas of your life have you drifted asleep? In what areas of your life have you drifted asleep to what reality is? Drifted asleep to the fact that he is in control and he is present? Drifted asleep towards the fact that one day he will come and bring this entire age to a beautiful end? Have we drifted to sleep thinking that our efforts and our activities will secure the end of redemption? Frontline, you, you, or Frontline Shawnee, I ask you to listen to Jesus' words here and take them to heart and stay awake. Stay awake to his promise. God has never broken a promise. He has been faithful. He is faithful now, and he will be faithful. Stay awake to his promises. Stay in his word and read his promises and take them to heart. I want to ask you, Frontline Shawnee, stay awake to his presence, the presence of God by his spirit. This is why we want to be a spirit-empowered church, a frontline, because we need his spirit with us. We need his presence with us. While we wait for Jesus to return, we recognize the fact that he is still with us by his spirit. 
And we are in desperate need of that as a church. I want to say, Frontline Shawnee, stay awake to the challenges and the threats of our age and of our culture. Don't drift to sleep. Don't act like the world is our friend. That all the forces of the world are actually for our good. They're not. And lastly, I want to say, Frontline Shawnee, stay awake to the hope that Jesus is coming back. The second coming of Jesus grounds our hope. If he's not coming back, we're wasting our time. But he is coming back. And in that we can trust. And it's that promise that will keep us awake even when the night is long. Let's pray. Spirit, I pray, would you teach us you teach us how to be awake. Would you show us those areas in our life where we have drifted asleep? Would you show us our, in our lives those areas where we have forgotten your promises? Would you remind us once again of your nearness to us? And Jesus, would you anchor our souls in the fact that you're coming back to finish what you started in our lives? Pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me?